0: Rob, how are you
1: doing this week? I'm all right. I'm all right. Thank you very much. What have you been up to?
0: Gosh, it's been work, work, work for me, I'm afraid. I haven't really managed to watch much at all this week. I don't know. about What about you?
1: I have seen Enola Holmes.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah.
1: And halfway through Ben-Hur.
0: Ben-Hur, an epic film.
1: It's so cool because... It's one of those films where you have intermission just appears on the screen after about an hour and a half because it's such a long film. Which I just think, as you know, I think intermissions should just be with any film over two and a half hours. Ben Hur with Charlton Heston. That's the one. Yeah. It's like an allegory of Christ's life and everyone knows it normally for the chariot race... But I've never really, I don't think I've ever really watched it all the way through. Yeah, it's good. It's pretty good. And Enola Holmes, yeah, enjoyed that. I found it just entertaining, just good fun. I didn't think it was anything particularly remarkable. But I thought Millie Bobby Brown was pretty good in it. And I was actually quite intrigued with Henry Cavill's take on Sherlock. And yeah. he, he took a bit of a, he had to because it was, wasn't was his film, was it? He took a bit more of a kind of peripheral role. Because when I first saw him on screen, I thought he looks a bit bulky for a yeah. Sherlock. But in yeah. actual fact, yeah. I thought he pulled it off really well. And I was—and I didn't realise that this was a, based on a book series, mm-hmm. a young adult book series. So this was the first of six books being adapted. It felt more of a TV movie than a cinematic movie. But I, yeah, I was just, it was just enjoyable. Nice way to spend an hour and a half or whatever it was.
0: And I remember Enola constantly talking to us, the audience, yes. and it reminded me of Miranda. It just made me laugh each time she did this. <laughs> it is like the TV series then.
1: Yeah, and in, in actual fact, the director was the same director that did Fleabag, which, of course, okay. has also, also has that it. Yep. technique yep. as well. Yeah. yeah, I thought it worked for most of it. There was actually quite a long chunk in the film where she didn't do that. And so then when yeah. she eventually did it again, it was just like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. It was a little bit strange, but yeah. yeah, it was all good fun.
0: And going back to Ben-Hur, actually, the chariot piece reminds me a little bit of the Hunger Games as well. <laughs> There's a scene in the Hunger Games a couple of times, actually, in one and two, where they go on this chariot. And that always reminds me of Ben-Hur.
1: Also, yeah. watching Ben-Hur, it's impossible not to kind of see some parallels with Gladiator as well. Yes, of course. But yeah, as I say, only like an hour and a half, two hours in, and I am only halfway in, so uh, I can report back on the other half hour next week. So, Uh, what films
0: did we review this week?
1: So this week it was Napoleon Dynamite, and (laughs) you couldn't get two more different films. Napoleon Dynamite and It's a Wonderful Life. We're going to start with It's a Wonderful Life, aren't we?
0: Okay, so It's a Wonderful Life, chose that as fantasy last week and it's released in 1946, directed by Frank Capra and starring the two main stars were really James Stewart and Donna Reed. So we follow the life of George Bailey from youngster to adult life and throughout his life we see him saving people's lives just by happening to be there. And doing the right thing as well. And you also see him as a family man also. However, the death of this father, who he ran a family bank, made it impossible for George to go to college. And also we had this investor and competitor, Mr. Potter, breathing down the father's neck and now George's neck as he takes over the business. And it just makes it very difficult for him to be able to do certain things, even enjoy like his honeymoon as an example. So after all this, he is a businessman. He has falls into debt and gets to the end of his tether and realizes his family are better off financially with him dead. So an angel from above is sent down to make George rethink his values in life. And that angel is Clarence. And you may have seen some scenes where he shouted out Clarence and his wife's name, Mary, in some snippets of films you may have seen. I really enjoyed it because it makes you realise family values, spending time with family. I actually impulsively said to my family after watching it, let's go bowling. And we had a great time. It It's made me think I needed to do more with my family after watching this film. And, it, and I would say also, if you're feeling a little bit blue, I think this is the film for you also. I think it kind of makes you wake up a little bit, which I think is great. I much prefer James Stewart in this kind of film. He played George Bailey compared to when he played the character in Vertigo. A very bizarre film for me that was. We reviewed that a few months back. But I found his character has very much light and shade he's happy and, and playful on occasion and then he really see him struggle with life as well and I love seeing his dancing skills in particular at the reunion event that they had and how the swimming pool turned into ballroom as well I've never seen how that worked before I know that there had been on occasions ballrooms on top of swimming pools but I've never actually seen how it all worked so that was quite interesting to see that I really enjoyed Donna Reed's performance as Mary and I don't think I've seen her before in any film she was adhered to eternity and obviously full of personality she had her own show in 1958 to 66 and I didn't realise she also was played Miss Ellie Ewing in an 80s Dallas series as well for just one year because unfortunately she died in the middle of that making as well in 1986 but you will find that she's stunningly beautiful in this film and her character Mary is really the backbone for George and very supportive I love the fact that they were childhood sweethearts we see a scene at the start of the film with her younger self at the bar or at pharmacy interestingly asking for a sundae or an ice cream and, and George quite keen on her too was it, was it was quite sweet to see that relationship starting but they kind of did their own thing for quite a few years and then they came back together as adults just after she finished college there was another girl trying to, to get his interest as well but you're like you're thinking you're 12 or under 12. What's going on at the start of this film? It was it was very bizarre because these two girls fighting over George. They were younger than teenagers, I would say. Mary knew that George was the man for her when she returned from college, and but it did take George some realization to remove that coyness that he had. But right in front of him, he had his future wife as well at that time. It's a romance, I would say. It's a bit of comedy mixed in there, and it's also got that fantasy that. The fantasy bit really is where the angels come in and you see at the start of the film that the angels, or stars they look like, actually, talking to each other at the start and saying, we need to support George Bailey, you know, he's had a, had a tough life and etc etc. et, cetera, et cetera. And then it, when it gets to the stage where he is looking like he could take his life, that's when Clarence comes down and uh, saves the day. The film is two hours, 10 minutes long. It's definitely designed for that interval in the middle, I would say. I really like it. I wouldn't say necessarily it was a Christmas film. I think it's for any time of the year. There is a little Christmas snippet I would say at the end, but I don't think that you can class it as really a Christmas film. And I think it's inspired other filmmakers to do things like Back to the Future for example. I think there's other films that have come off the back of this film, but I'd love to get your thoughts Rob on what you thought.
1: Yeah, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I mean I've seen it once before, only once before, which is incredible because I know this is like Christmas season staple and it's always up there on the best films of all time list. But I only, only watched it probably in the last year and I remember watching it then and really liking it, really liked the values of it. I really liked the performances and so I was looking forward to watching it again. I think probably the most enjoyable thing in this film for me is James Stewart's performance of George Bailey and that character. I just thought it's such a well-drawn character. And I, I love watching Jimmy Stewart. He has this, the words just seem to, I don't know, just... Flow out of him effortlessly when he's just delivering dialogue. I don't know, there's something incredibly almost relaxing and therapeutic about mm. how he delivers his lines that I absolutely love. I mean, the story as a whole, the notion that, you know, an angel's going to come down and replay your life as if you were it never have, born. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there are parallels with a Christmas carol. And Lionel Barrymore, who plays Mr. Potter, based his character on Scrooge. But aside from that, this was adapted from a book called The Greatest Gift. And so, yeah, I I thought it was... Lovely the way they had this angel coming down and I thought it was really clever the way the angel appeared when George Bailey is, like you say, at his wit's end and is is on this bridge on this horrible snowy, stormy evening and he's looking down at, at the river and mm-hmm. suddenly you just see this character literally in front of him like fall from, we know, we know that he's fallen from the sky but for George Bailey, he just suddenly sees this person fall in the river. I thought that was really nicely done. Yeah. You know, I mean, George Bailey dives in and saves him instinctively, as he would. But that whole period where Clarence is trying to convince George that he's an angel and it takes a while, well, obviously, it takes a while for him to buy into that at all, only when he starts to take him through his town and realize there's no trace of him at all and the town's gone to ruin and is. Has a really horrible tone to it. Everything that was good about George Bailey in what he did in everyday life and the relationships he had was stripped away from the town he then saw in a life without George Bailey. I thought that was beautifully done. Yes. But I really like the scene yeah. after the graduation dance when Mary and George are walking back. And I don't know, there's just something about it. They're not flirting, but you can Mm. tell, you know, you know that Mary's infatuated with George. Mm. George, he's kind of a curious guy. He likes her, but, and and she's wearing a dressing gown because they were, everyone's in the pool and then, you know, the dressing gown gets stuck and she ends up having to hide in a bush and it all becomes quite comical. But I don't know, I just thought almost as a little vignette of courtship, if you like, between those mm. two. I thought that was so, so nice. Yeah. That but was...
0: again, in, th- in that scene, he was interrupted before he could kiss or anything like which you expect in that kind of scene in, in most films. Again, he was interrupted because his father had fallen ill and he had to disappear and, and sort That's that right. out. So that's every right. time there was some element of happiness, he was pulled away to do something
1: to support his family. Well, this is a really interesting point because there's another spin on this film. Whilst the mm. ending is ties everything up, and he—I mean, it's—I don't think it's a spoiler to say it is just a happy ending. But I mean, it, it's how he gets to that that's the most interesting thing, anyway. But throughout the film, the number of sacrifices he makes. In some ways, you feel like he's living this entire life where he's trapped. When we first meet him, he's a boy and he's working in the, the pharmacy, stroke, whatever. Yeah, it's With bizarre, ice cream, isn't it? Ice cream yeah, yeah. And the pharmacist, a really old guy who's very frail, accidentally puts the wrong pills in a prescription for a child, which were poisonous pills. And George, as a boy, sees this and points it out to him. And the old man doesn't really understand what he's trying to say. I think he just thinks he's, um, you know, he's pointing out that he's old and frail and actually kind of slaps him. And then once he realizes what George has done, in effect, he saved a child's life. He like, you know, hugs him and apologizes. And that sets the tone almost for everything. Because what happened there? He was initially, he was slapped round the face for doing something good. Then he had that opportunity where he was flirting, if you like, that scene we just talked about with Mary. And then his father dies and he has to go off. Early on when he's a boy, when they flash back and show how his brother falls like into the brother. lake. Yeah, and then he, so yeah. then he has a permanent hearing loss in his ear as a result. He doesn't go to college. He gives his college money to his brother because he feels obliged to stay Mm -hmm. at the bank, even though we all know it's not what he wants. He's always been talking about this life of going off exploring traveling then coming back mm-hmm. then going to college and then he wanted to be an engineer and create buildings or and so I, I actually just felt that you could argue that there's something actually really quite sad about it and and even when everyone is called up to war you know he can't go to war because of his hearing so he, he even misses that so each time other people if you like things happen he loses out. And he ends up almost kind of trapped in Bedford Falls, which is completely the opposite of what he wanted. And in a strange way, even in the climactic scene, where the whole community rally round and come together and kind of help him out when he's in that financial hole, which rounds wow. off the film and this whole idea of if you do good, then you're going to receive good, you know, yeah. regardless what happens. In some ways, he's still trapped at the end of it. He still hasn't got out of Bedford. I know there's no argument to say that the whole film makes him realise that what he has in Bedford Falls is worth it. You know, ultimately, mm. that's kind of, you could say that's what it's about. But also you could argue, and there's a, if you watch that last scene where he's got all his children and he's got Mary there and his wife and everyone's, you know, giving all the Contribute. donations and yep. it's all happy and it's Christmas and da, da da there's a shot of him where he looks away and he looks actually a little bit sad. Uncomfortable. Yeah, uncomfortable. And uncomfort- uncomfortable. uncomfortable. And I think it's like just prior to that, his prospect as he returned back to current day after this journey through seeing Bedford Falls without him, he doesn't care he's thousands of pounds in debt and that he's about to effectively go to jail, really. that That's his um, ultimate fate. and And he doesn't care. At that point, he's just happy. At that point, he doesn't know what's about to happen next. And you could almost argue that's his ticket out. Maybe that was his ticket out. Or maybe that's why he was happy. I'll, I don't, you know, I'm going to jail. Like the, mm. this is the end of my, you know, this is the end of this life that I didn't necessarily yeah. want for myself. And so then when it all flips and everyone helps him out, there's that look on his face. Yes, he's smiling and laughing, but there is a, he breaks that smile and laugh and gives, like you say, gives a quite an uncomfortable look that almost mm. implies, Or has he he got what he wanted at the end?
0: Yeah, I actually didn't think he... There's two occasions where I didn't see him acting, and that was one of them. I felt that was almost in disbelief that people would do that. It's almost like they caught him on camera with like yeah right that wouldn't happen but there was also another time where he I felt he wasn't acting he was just a charmer was when he was with his mum and they were just having a conversation and she you know she was telling him to go after Mary and you could just see there was a bond between them and I thought that was lovely and it looked like a natural bond so so those are the two times but I really thought actually the ending I felt it slightly rushed even though the film was fairly long and I felt that really wouldn't happen people wouldn't come together like that for what we heard earlier in the film these people were struggling to make ends meet and they needed their money why would they give it at the end of the film so I actually thought he's just giving that look like yeah this this wouldn't actually happen
1: Yeah, I agree. It wouldn't happen. But then it is a fantasy film, I suppose. It's like, yeah, that wouldn't happen, but they needed that to show the virtues of his goodwill throughout his life. But yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. That wouldn't happen. There was actually a few scenes that were, well, not as scripted. Um, One of them was when there's the bank run um, Mm -hmm. on his loan and buildings bank and there's a crowd of people and they're all coming in asking for their money. And obviously George is trying to explain to them that he doesn't have have money. The money's all tied up in their properties and, you know, your property's paying for that property, you know. But regardless of that, it's either he helps them out or you've got um, Mr. Potter, the big financier, fat cat, Scrooge type character who's offering them yeah. 50 cents on the dollar to take their money in cash now. So, so George is trying his best to keep his customers whilst not really having any money and here we go again his honeymoon is interrupted because of this bank run and then he uses the honeymoon money just to try and pay a certain amount of money to each of them just to keep them happy and you know the first person wants 200 and whatever it is 50 dollars which is quite a lot but he ends up giving it to him and the second person says I want 17 dollars 42 something or something like that a very exact figure (laughs) and apparently in the script it was never going to be 17 it was going to be an even number, like twenty or thirty, yeah. and Capra changed it to seventeen to try and throw Jimmy Stewart and go uh-huh. and also go one step further and make it an exact figure. And so when George Bailey reacts, it's a yeah. genuine reaction. And when, yeah, he grabs, when, he, when he grabs her and kisses her, you know, that wasn't in the script. That wasn't supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. But I agree. It's funny you talk about that scene with the mother. I really love that. It was such a mm. such a small scene, but I totally agree. It felt so natural. It was lovely. I must admit, the way they portrayed his family, his relationship with his brother, his father, his mother. I mean, I suppose, whatever you want to term, perfect family. It was all very warm, I must admit, may- maybe I would have liked to have seen more of the darker side of it. Uh... Mm.
0: See, I I was surprised that Mr. Potter didn't come forward or somebody didn't dob him in that he's got this money, which was supposed to be George's money, really. Um, so I was surprised that he kept hold of that. So bad on you, Mr. Potter, for, st- for starters. Uh, so I, I really did think there would be something to end that piece as well, but there wasn't. You kind of think, how would it carry on? You kind of think that he would get arrested and some, you know, they would get found out. Basically, I do find Jimmy Stewart's not the best kisser, is he? <laughs> I have to say, you've seen him in Vertigo; he's very full on, isn't he? He 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 did it in Vertigo, and he did it in in this film, and he's almost like squishing their faces, you know. Oh, that's a that's not a very nice kiss to watch.
1: <laughs> but that was a thing, wasn't it? That was the way. There was a period in yeah exactly well like you say passionate stroke quite violent and grabby but I think that's how how it was back then like so many films you watch where the yeah the kissing is like you're squashing two faces together and it's like oh it is a bit weird. He was quite concerned about that scene because it's the first. It was the first romantic or kissing scene he had done since he returned from war, and obviously coming back and acting. Uh, okay. Um, and if you remember the build-up to that scene, which was, I thought, was incredibly well done. When Mary is on the phone to her boyfriend at college, but we know that Mary loves George and George has happens to have popped into a house at the time and Mary's doing her best to try and keep George in the house, interested, if you like, whereas George has got other things on his mind and doesn't really realise that she's trying to you know she's she's vying for his affection and you Mm. can't quite work out whether George is aware of this and is shunning her or whether George is just in another place and he doesn't really realize what's going on but there's a scene where he's they're right close together their faces are almost touching as they're both on the phone having a joint conversation with her boyfriend at the other end of the phone and as this happens at this point they're not kissing but it's incredibly I suppose sensual and I thought actually that was very very well done Mm. Mm. I mean it's only after that when the emotion poured over that he kind of grabbed her but the number of scenes memorable scenes that natural scenes and i think my biggest takeaway though is just jimmy stewart in the role and this character i just i just yeah you can't help but love this character i mean i feel hugely sorry for him and like i said even Mm. at the end i'm not entirely sure it's kind of quite the outcome he Mm. wanted but Mm. it does it does tie it all up nicely
0: but also that strength of relationship with Donna Donna Reed's cat, Mary, uh, Donna Reed's character was really strong and she just supported him, whatever happened. She was there. She had ideas. She was quite a strong female lead. And as I said, I've not seen her perform before. I thought she did a really good performance as well.
1: Oh, yeah, Absolutely. They were both fantastic. Mm. I couldn't believe that this film didn't win an Oscar. Mm. And I think one of the, I suppose, relatively well-known things for It's a Wonderful Life is that when it was first released, it didn't do very well at all. And the rights were relinquished very early on. And so the film basically went into the public domain and a lot of broadcasters were able to air it and it was because of that that it started to get the following and the acclaim that is it's now known for mm.
0: So it was nominated for six Oscars and it was pipped to the post by the best years of our lives, which I've not even heard of. Have you?
1: I've heard of it, but I don't know anything about it. Yeah, I mean, I must admit my knowledge of films around that period wouldn't have been particularly high mm-hmm. anyway.
0: So, yeah, I'm surprised that it didn't get something. I would agree with that.
1: Just, I just think I thought this was quite interesting. In 2004, the BBC did a poll through their Radio mm-hmm. Times magazine for the best film never to have won an Oscar. It's mm-hmm. a Wonderful Life came second. Okay, you know, and do you know what was first? The Shawshank Redemption.
0: Did that not get any Oscars? I either? know
1: precisely. Ah. So when I read that, I thought, "Wow, for a Shawshank Redemption, yeah, didn't get any either. Both anyway, cracking films. both cracking films. I'm going to give It's a Wonderful Life eight and a half out of ten. Mm, um it's not you know if i i I think we've seemed to have set this bar of nine plus in my mind takes it into a slightly different category of like you know i suppose the ones we love the most on review or and i've got to be honest that's that's mainly mainly down to just how magnetic jimmy stewart is in this and that character and it does ask quite a lot of questions, this film, but yeah, it probably doesn't have quite the same impact as some of the others we've reviewed that have got into that nine, nine and a half, ten category. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I'm going to give it eight out of 10, actually. There's a few instances where I thought, nah, does that work or not? And would that really happen? So I'm giving it eight simply just for that reason. I did enjoy it, and it did make me reset my values on on my family circumstances at the time. And it has light and dark, but there's generally a good feel-good movie at the end of the day. So definitely one to watch if you've not watched it before.
1: Good stuff. Right.
0: So completely different film we're about to review now, Napoleon Dynamite.
1: Okay, so Napoleon Dynamite. This was released in 2004 starring John Heder, Efren Ramirez, and John Grease. And this was directed by Gerard Hess and was written by Gerard Hess and Jerusa Hess. Um, It was actually Hess's first full-length feature and is partially adapted from an earlier short film that's also starred John uh, Heda. So basically from the success of this film, which is called Palooka, they then adapted it into this full-length feature. So the film is set in the small town of Preston, Idaho, and tells the story of a socially awkward college kid, 16-year-old Napoleon Dynamite. He's very unpopular at school, he's teased, he's bullied, and he just wants to desperately fit in. I mean, in some ways you could probably say that he's somewhere maybe on the spectrum, but you're not really sure You very much feel for him. He has a few friends, um, not many. There's Deb, who runs her own bedroom photography studio. You have Pedro, who's the new kid in town from Mexico with an awesome bike and the only kid in school with a moustache. And you have Kip, his older geek brother, who spends his time on chat rooms wooing his internet girlfriend, La Fonda. Napoleon and Kip both live with their grandmother. It's all a pretty dull existence. It's very kind of sterile and functional man-made Midwestern time warp they live in, I I came across to me, which just seems cut off from the world, but provides a lot of comedy. I mean, for example, fashion doesn't exist in this place. And I mean, the fashion just in itself is quite amusing. So after his grandmother suffers a freak... (laughs) I mean, this sounds ridiculous. After his grandmother suffers a freak quad biking accident, she has to go to hospital, leaving Napoleon and Kip's scheming jock uncle, Rico to come to stay to look after them and in an attempt to get Kip off the computer and start to earn his keep Uncle Rico ropes him in to help him in this door-to-door sales he's doing selling kitchenware which ends disastrously whilst Napoleon completely resents his uncle being there you know he's pretty selfish and he does use them really for his own gain which yeah. Napoleon concedes straight away. So, Rico starts to then worm his way in on Napoleon's life in some ways and starts to have effects on his friends and his life at school. So, he tries to worm his way into his friendship with Deb when he goes to her to get a photo shoot done and then spreads false rumors about Napoleon at school. So, he gets even more stick and kind of ruins that friendship he has with Deb. And so, Napoleon's only chance to redeem himself and gain some popularity comes when he takes on the role as a campaign manager for Pedro when he decides to run for class president against the class favorite Summer Weekly. I'm not going to say anything about the ending because I think it's one of the most memorable things about the film, so I'm not going to go into any more detail. But that's a broad overview Just right straight off the bat, if you watch this film, there is a post-credits scene. But because these days, if you watch a Marvel film, you're almost waiting for it. I had no idea there was one until I read about it and ended up having to watch the film again all the way to the end of the credits. So just a little word of warning. If you like the film and you watch it to the end, stick with it for that. Um, it's a very, very unique film. This and the sense of humour is also quite unique. I mean, you could almost say it sends up geeks in a way. It plays on that whole theme, but I don't think it's done in a vindictive way. I actually found it a really charming film when you first see Napoleon Dynamite, and he's you know he's one of these like I think they're called mouth breathers. You know everything's like oh oh god, oh, you know he's always is. It's hard to invest in him. It takes a while before you realise that all he really is wanting to do, regardless of how he tends to embellish the truth to try and make him sound better than he is, and regardless of his pastimes, that <laughs> he is just trying to fit in and he is just wanting to be liked by people. Um, yeah. And I think really the film is 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 as simple as that. At least it was for me. And then around him, you've just got these... I mean, he is a crazy character himself. But in a weird way, he's the normal one. There are so many crazy characters around him. I mean, Uncle Rico, Kip. I mean, interestingly... Kip in this film is supposed to be about 32 years old, but he doesn't look 32. I mean, you know he's, he's not at school. And interestingly, even though, even though John Heder is playing a 16-year-old, in real life he was 27, and the actor who played Kip was 28. So from that point of view, it doesn't really matter. The clothes they wear, the way they look is just priceless. And yeah... Once you tune into it, then you kind of go with it. <laughs> I'd like to... I'd like You're, to worried.
0: You're worried what I'm going to say, aren't
1: you? I know. I'd like to think it's a weird, strange, quirky, but rewarding watch. So, so, what, so come on then. Tell me all about it's it. It's
0: certainly quirky. Let's just say that. So I've not watched this film before. But when you said last week it was going to be a little bit like Anchorman, I was like, oh, here we go. I gave Anchorman probably... I think I gave it six and a half out of ten. Because it was engaging, but then it was just daft at the same time. Did I time. say that?
1: Did I say that? I didn't say it, it was like you this. You did. Is not, yeah, did yeah. I? Yeah,
0: you mentioned it was a bit like ankh Oh, did yeah. I? And so I was expect. I knew what I was in for. I knew it was in for a bit of silliness, but actually, it wasn't that silly. It was no. quite engaging, really. It kind of you followed the story of Napoleon and his friends and they were you know this high school environment and I quite like watching those those environments but he, he was no Danny Zuko let's just say that from like Greece he was complete opposite he was your typical geeky teenager really and he would go oh gosh look like, you know <laughs> as you, as you would say all the time and he had mouth wide open all the time gawping
1: yeah he looked like and, a goldfish, didn't he, he, yeah. had, he had,
0: does he ever smile well I wondered whether he naturally was because you do get people. People that have their mouths open most of the time like that all the time, anyway. And I was kind of wondering, has he played? I haven't seen him in any other film, I have to be honest. So I was debating whether he's normally like that, so I didn't want to comment on that piece. But some elements remind me a little bit of Juno because it was very stylized, very arty at the start, like a bit like Juno was. And we were talking about teenagers here as well. You could see he was probably a little bit too old on occasions to play that part. But I think he was supposed to be playing, what, a 16-year-old, you say? Yeah. Because it was the final year of their high school, I think. And that's where his friend Pedro wanted to be president and was supporting him. I think it was very true Think you get kids that I couldn't make eye contact on occasions when I was a teenager. I would say you think you say something stupid and you kind of go round children or scuttle off. And that's what he did. And I think that adoption of slouchiness as well was a typical teenager. I just think some films and TV series where you see this high school persona is always very hyped up and just to make it a little bit more interesting, more exciting. Whereas this was like, this is how it is guys. <laughs> that's You do get people like this. So I thought it was fairly realistic in that front. I do like his friend Pedro he was again very stereotypical teenager very similar to Napoleon but he was very ambitious and I thought that was brilliant and he always did very well if he wanted something like he wants to go on a date with a girl he'll go for it he didn't mind being knocked back he was showing signs of a leader and that's what he wanted to do at the end of the day he wanted to be the high school president and I think that was really nicely done and I love the fact that he had his cousins as kind of gangster style protectors as well so don't mess with Pedro or you're messing with his cousins kind of scenario and I I really like that it is a bit of a geek fest film I would say Uh, it did take me a little while to get into it so you have to stick at it. But then I watched it over a couple of lunch times this week. I would say I watched probably the first forty five minutes and then I, I had to turn it off because I had to go to some meetings. And then I thought, well, actually I really miss it. I you know, and if I didn't like the film, I wouldn't be bothered about that. I would be like, Oh, I've got to go back and watch that film. I actually wanted to go back and watch the film. So I wanted to know what else happens in Napoleon and Pedro. So there's obviously has got something that really appealed to me with a storyline basically kind of plodded along but you kind of wanted to grow and achieve their goals through this film the girl would you call her a girlfriend I don't I don't. Know I don't the, think ahead.
1: yeah I don't think you would it, would she you she was
0: kind of she blatantly liked Napoleon but she also liked Pedro as well but Napoleon more Deb was played by Tina Margarino and I recognised her face I was thinking where have I seen her before and I realised it was the young girl in Waterworld with the Kev Kevin wow what a yeah, so, wow that's yeah. amazing yeah, so it was it was great to see her in this film. I haven't a clue what she, else she's been in. Maybe we can look her up now. But she looks very. They all look very different when you look at IMDb. They all look so sort of either gangster style or just a bit more trendy.
1: <laughs> well, anything you, other. Well, I mean, yeah. anything is yeah, different seeing. from what you see in the films. Going to yeah, look better. So she's
0: been in Napoleon Dynamite, obviously Waterworld, Veronica Mars, and. Karina Karina so she's done some other films not majorly big ones I would say but yeah I, I realized I've seen her before and it was good to kind of make that connection and then thought, suddenly thought I haven't seen Waterworld for years I'd like to go and see Waterworld now so they're all very introverted I would say all the teenagers in this apart from the trendy trendy ones and they were all over age most of the the teenagers in this which reminded me a little bit of Greece. You know, you get the people playing teenagers that are actually much, much older. So, yeah, and his brother was very slight, wasn't he? And he had a most annoying voice. And I was just thinking, oh, I could not work or be around a person that just sounds like that all the time at Drive and Potty. But I couldn't work out what year they were aiming for for this film. I know at the end they had the Jamiroquai song, and John Heed, a fantastic dancer, and that's probably why he went on to do, what was it, Blades of Glory is the, one of the films that he's done as well?
1: On that point, this has come up before in terms of when the film was supposed to be set, because there's a few contradictions. Apparently, when he was asked <laughs> when it was set, right. the director just said, Idaho, he wouldn't commit. <laughs> and the only reference there is to the year is... You do see Napoleon's student ID in that opening credit sequence. Uh, what and on said? there is the year, and this was deliberate. I think the producers wanted to put a year on this. And so on his ID, it does give the date of 2004. But, no, you're right. but you're right. No, are no,
0: not 2004. No, but,
1: but, but I mean, if you watch it, that's what it says. Yeah. But obviously there's loads yeah. and loads of 80s um, fashion, technology, pop culture. So yeah. I just yeah. don't think there is one, but you just assume it's from that kind of era.
0: Yeah, because you've got your VHS videos, you've got your cassettes, you've got your, the fashion. The, I mean, Uncle Rico, he looks like he's something out of the 70s as well, Absolutely. not the 80s. And then you've got even Pedro, he dresses quite 80s looking as well. I thought it was around 94 to 98, because that's when Jamiroquai was quite popular with that song. And yeah.
1: (laughs) Go on, have you got any more thoughts? Um, I remember when I watched this film, I wanted to go and buy a T-shirt with a liger on it because (laughs) it was just so classic. One of the things about this film which I love is the fact that he's always jealous of people with, you know, sweet, sweet skills and I think it was really funny when him and his brother got lured into some local TV advert to go and try some martial arts because they, you know, they want uh, yeah. he wants to get some sweet numchuck skills. Um, <gasps> the and-
0: size of his wife, though, <laughs> which wasn't a wife, is well, it was a man, wasn't it? <laughs> it looked like exactly. a man, anyway. It's what, exactly?
1: But yeah, <laughs> but thank God that Enrico did go to try and sell his wife something because that meant that he finally got beaten up when the, the mm. martial arts guy came back but um, yes his only skill I mean it's debatable really whether it is a skill is passion let's just say is drawing and sketching but I mean let's just say it's incredibly <laughs> childlike <laughs> and you know there's a classic scene where he draws what he calls a liger I think Deb sat on the steps outside his house and he's just drawing and there's this really childlike picture of this hybrid tiger and lion. He just says, it's a it's a liger. Yeah. And she says, <laughs> says, what's a liger? He goes, it's, some, it's a tiger and lion mixed but bred for skills in magic. I mean, these lines sound so bizarre, but they are strangely uh, amusing when they come out of his mouth. And then when yeah. it comes to him needing a date for the prom, whilst he's arming and ahhing about whether to ask Deb out, you got Pedro on the sly, asks two people out at the same time, just almost as backup. But Napoleon only realises he's trying to ask Summer out, the coolest girl in of the year. And of course, she says no and then he discovers as backup he asks Deb so he's going with Deb and Napoleon's like what you know because I think he probably does like Deb yeah Napoleon. yeah. He does. so yeah. he just almost has to pick some girl to ask and Pedro suggests that you use your you know what are you good at he suggests you're good at drawing you're brilliant at drawing use that skill so he draws this portrait <laughs> of the girl oh, that he wants to ask out it's really awful <laughs> and he goes to her house and she's not there and he lists this kind of invite as it were with the mum and then you see the scene where the mum gives it to the girl and she <laughs> she opens it and you see the picture basically her reaction just says it all it's just the most well I don't I know, would, really think that's the best way to a girl's heart no but picture. I
0: would have loved it if that was the first time she saw the drawing I hope they oh, left yes. it and, and hadn't shown it. Before. That would have been even better as well. But uh, to be honest, actually, when I was starting to draw when I was younger, my pictures probably looked like that
1: as well. Well, I know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you uh, if you if you were to basically go and look at some drawings of, let's just say, I don't know, probably a seven year old, this is what the
0: maybe drawings. a bit more than that. Yeah, I'd say about a ten year old. Say 11 11 old. Okay, okay, maybe, yeah.
1: maybe, maybe. <laughs> but there's loads of kind of memorable lines and memorable scenes yeah. in this. I heard somewhere or I read somewhere that this was Jonathan Dem, So the director of Silence of the Lambs. This is one of his favourite films, apparently. The reason he liked it is purely just because he just thought it was completely unique and i think that's right although there's the kind of indie charm and that you might see in a film like juno and you have this very strange geeky comedy i don't think you can comfortably fit it alongside another film and so yeah. and also this was made on a you know, shoestring budget and did incredibly well. I mean, the distribution rights for this were picked up for three million. And, and this movie was edited in the producer's apartment using Final Cut Pro on a Mac. I mean, that they, they had hardly no budget for this. And when it was screened, I think at the Sundance Film Festival and got such a great reception, they went back and put in this um, additional scene that comes at the end of the credits Once they realised that people were going to, people liked it so
0: much. I was going to say, it's also apparently one of Edith Bowman's, one of her favourite films as well. I mean, it's, it's quite funny.
1: It's so geeky, it's cool. And if you haven't, seen John Heeder in anything else. You may have heard of Blades of Glory. That's kind of an ice skating comedy with Will Ferrell. John Heeder's in that as well. That's the only other film I've seen him in. I, I'm yeah. imagining he must come from that Saturday Night Live staple. I'm not sure, but because I, I haven't, I haven't seen any other he can, films. He
0: can certainly dance, let's just say that, and obviously that leads on to his Blades of Glory film probably quite nicely as well. He can
1: certainly dance. That's all yeah. that needs to be said about the final scene of this. We're not talking about it, because I, I personally think... It kind of comes a little bit out of the blue, and is in some ways is what makes the film is the very final scene.
0: So um I've been toying what to give this. If I had to give it a rating for the first half hour, I probably would have given it like a four out of ten. But you stick with it, and it's actually quite engaging. So I'm going to give it a seven and a half.
1: I think that's really generous. I think that's a is good. Is that too generous? <laughs> no, I. I wasn't expecting that from you at all.
0: Yeah, no, I quite quite liked it. If there was a sequel, you know, if there was another one, I would probably watch it. But I wouldn't necessarily go to cinema and watch it. I would watch it on my own screen. I would be intrigued to know what happens in the next one.
1: Okay, I'm going to give it eight. But the reason I'm giving it eight, I I love the humour and it's just totally unique. There's nothing else like it. For a film to do so well and not really feel like it fits anywhere, but it's still totally engaging and funny, um, and you won't see many characters like this. I, I'm just gonna, I'm going to give it an eight purely for that to, how, how authentic local, it is.
0: Go to your local high school. <laughs> <laughs> you no, will I find characters know. like that. I missed
1: I missed out. I don't, if I, if there was a Napoleon Dynamite ice in my score, I it would have been it would have been uh, a way you better were the trendy
0: trendy boys probably. That's why. <laughs> oh,
1: I don't think so. Well, look, I like this film, so maybe that says something about me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Excellent. Right, on to this week's films.
1: Right, this week's films. So one of them is already predetermined, and then they all go back in. So I tell you what. Western, is it? Yeah.
0: Pick
1: one of mine. Okay. Well, how So you got two. And then we're
0: going to throw Western back in as well because it's new.
1: That's right. Set,
0: isn't it? Okay. So there's a
1: possibility you could have two Westerns. We could see get Westerns. <laughs> so how many? You say you got two that you're happy to pick from? No, I've got three. All right, I'm going to go with number three then.
0: Number three is The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford.
1: This is the Brad Pitt film, right?
0: Yes, it is. It, and it's got Casey Affleck and Sam Rockwell in it as well in 2007.
1: Right. So this is brilliant because sometimes I'll look for best Westerns of all time, often to jog your memory of the films you have completely forgotten about. And this is on the list. You know, it's always in top 20s at least, but I haven't seen it. And so I obviously, in fact, I looked this morning and I saw this. I thought it's a film I want to see. I haven't got loads on my Western list. So absolutely awesome. So this is 2007. Robert Ford, who's idolised Jesse James since childhood, tries hard to join the reforming gang of the Missouri outlaw, but gradually becomes resentful of the bandit leader. And as you say, Brad Pitt, Casey Affleck, Sam Shepard, I'm super looking forward to this.
0: So you can rent or buy from Amazon Prime, Sky Store, YouTube or Rakuten TV.
1: Lovely. Okay, and they all go back in.
0: Right, what should we go for? Horror.
1: And thriller. I have 17.
0: I'm going to go for number 13. Unlucky for some.
1: It's a classic. It's an 80s classic. Oh. It's, it's The Lost Boys.
0: Oh, <laughs> fantastic.
1: What a beauty. I,
0: I haven't seen that for so long. Nor have oh, I. That's going to be a treat. That's going to be a treat.
1: It is, isn't it?
0: <laughs> With Corey Haim. With his mouth open, he, he does a lot of mouth opening scenes as well. Corey Feldman. Who else is in it? I'm trying to not look at anything. Pop quiz: Who's in it? Corey Haynes, Corey Feldman,
1: Jason Patrick.
0: That's the one. Yeah.
1: You're missing quite the big a big one. You're missing What's the very name? biggest star.
0: One that's in 24. Can't that's the one.
1: I'm, oh. gonna, I'm not, not going to tell you because I'm just going to let you. Ha- I'm hanging you out to dry now. <gasps> let me tell you what this film's about, and then maybe by the end of that, you might remember. Okay. So, after moving to a new town, two brothers discover that the area is a haven for vampires. There you go. Um, It's Kiefer Sutherland, isn't it?
0: Ask them. (laughs) (laughs) How can I forget his name? Do you know what was really funny? I went to a marketing event where we get agencies to come present to you for like 10 minutes. It's almost like speed dating, but with marketing agencies and there was one company that had a really cool escape room with Keith Sutherland in it. You know, there was probably in the room on my... You for, you made, what do you mean?
1: For real? What do you mean? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. No, yeah. He's part of this escape room. They've hired him to be, to be part of this escape room simulator thing. There was, I would say, probably four of my colleagues. Uh, one of them was similar age to me. One was maybe 10 years younger than me and one was about 20 years younger than me had no idea who Keith o. Sutherland was, never seen him. I was like, what? But he's been at this, that and that, you know. But there, lo and behold, I forget his name. So.
1: <laughs> well, here's a, talking of Keith o. Sutherland, a mate of mine who lives in Henley, Henley-on-Thames, one morning he was paddleboarding down the Thames. There was a dude on the side, you know, you get these back gardens that roll down to the river. Some guy was standing there with a cigarette and a cup of coffee with, with sunglasses on. He starts talking to my mate Pete whilst he goes past on the paddleboard. Here's Keith Sullivan. This was only like last year.
0: Wow. A bit like, anyway. like, how do you know Kevin Bacon? How do you know? Yeah, he's yeah, yeah. He's yeah. He's yeah. He's <laughs> so it is to rent and buy on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, Sky Store, YouTube, and Rakuten TV.
1: Lovely, lovely, That's lovely. Good. Well, this week, my goal is to watch the second half of ben-hur which is probably going to take me about another day i'd like to try and squeeze in another film but we'll see i must song
0: when you're a stranger people get something like that people get ugly
1: when you're alone faces i love that song when you're strange
0: faces come
1: out of the rain when you're
0: strange strange, (laughs) when you're (laughs) 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 (laughs)
1: Straight.
0: <laughs> 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 ah. well, we are being very strange Rob oh, I think we better leave it there shouldn't we yeah,
1: I think we should <laughs> Have a good week And you oh. Alright see you later bye and to our
0: listeners bye